You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining us today is Representative Andrew Fink of House District 58, Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Thank you, Representative Fink, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Good morning. So the biggest thing that's happened since last time we talked was the budget. It did finally get passed. Um, We're already in fiscal year 2022, actually. It began Friday, October 1st. Governor Whitmer signed the budget just two days before it would go into effect. I was actually surprised I was looking. Uh, the legislature and governor are normally to the wire with this. It was signed on the 30th, September 30th, both last year and 2019, which is crazy to me that we're always up to that at the very end. So we're a day early this year, <laughs> September 29th. But let's talk about some of the things that got in the budget. $70 billion, one of the big budget items, the rainy day fund called the Budget Stabilization Fund in 2011 with $2 million began in the 70s, but it was very low 2011. And by 2019, it had gotten up to $1 billion. But with COVID-19 and lost money there, that fund has been depleted. This year, we would add $500 million to replenish that. Some other big items, $5.2 billion for fixing local roads, $100 million for workforce development programs, $2.2 billion for universities and community colleges, lots of items on the budget. What's your reaction to the top line, the budget, all of that? First, let me address the timing issue. I mean, you're right. This came down to the wire, and I suppose that's that's probably heavily influenced by the fact that the governor uh, and the legislature are controlled by different parties and have different starting places for what priorities should be. And during, I think, the the eight years that Governor Snyder was the governor, I think they had the budget done in June of every single year. So that does vary with kind of how far apart the uh, legislature Mm -hmm. and the governor uh, start. Um, You know, my overall reaction is that it's good to keep the government uh, open to the extent we require people to engage with some of these services. I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but I mean, a, a for instance is if we close the secretary of state's office and your birthday is on, you know, the 1st of October, um, and your, your license or your license plate expires or something, uh, it's doesn't strike me as very uh, responsible for the, for the government to allow itself to be closed and also require you to engage in services provided only by the government. So, you know, I think, maintaining uh, maintaining government services that people are taxed for and, and have a right to expect makes you know makes getting the budget done very important. Uh, there is no denying that this is a compromised budget, so I'm not going to tell you that I'm uh, thrilled with every single piece of it. Um, and I certainly don't want to hear any complaining uh, from any uh, entities out there that rely on the state government for part of their budget uh, that they didn't get enough money because I think that that is laughable on its face. We uh, we certainly have funded the, the government services uh, adequately with this budget. I think that, that devoting money to roads is good as long as uh, the spending is responsible and the scheduled projects is responsible, something I've, I've been anxious about many times in the past and uh, continues to be a concern is the possibility that you just put more money into a construction season. You don't really get that much more work done because the number of contractors available doesn't necessarily increase. Uh, and so you drive up the costs of, uh, of materials, you drive up the cost of labor, and you don't necessarily get a whole lot more done. I think given how consistent the legislature has been in addressing the many decade-long neglect of our infrastructure uh, for the last 10 years or so, I think we are seeing a, a somewhat reliable 
uh, increase in availability of road contractors, for instance. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to lose sleep uh, over this budget with regard to road funding. I think it's good to, to continue to devote additional resources there. Um, but that kind of thing, I mean, it, the, the point is just uh, throwing money at problems without, without really thinking through what the consequences are going to be is not the solution. So I think in, at the end of the day, our appropriations chair, uh, uh, Representative Albert, another former jarhead, uh, did a good job of representing the interests of uh, the people of our districts in the House. Uh, the people of the state of Michigan. And so I, th- I think overall it was a, a responsible budget, uh, but uh, definitely not one that uh, I would have, uh, you know, written if I didn't, if I wasn't looking at uh, Governor Whitmer as the person who had to sign it. Sure. And on that road funding, something that I thought was interesting is how a lot of it was going to the local authorities rather than uh, the state as a whole, the Department of Transportation doing this, we're giving it to the local governments to replace their own bridges and all of that, which is different from, because some of this is coronavirus funding uh, government or federal grants that are going to the state, and most other states are just using it at the state level for their big top-line projects, whereas we're giving it, and hopefully giving it to the local authorities will mean that it's a lot more responsibly used. Yeah, that, that certainly is my hope, and I have talked with uh, Southern Michigan Road Commissioners who, who think that they, you know, they stand ready to get this, to get the, the work on the bridges done, for instance, um, and, and they were, were very supportive of, uh, of, of getting this funding approved so that they can devote it to those projects. I, I hope that that's true. I mean, certainly uh, we could have a very complex discussion about when, you know, local decision-making or local execution of a, of a plan is better and when state, you know, state-level decision-making is better. Um, but the the bottom line is with something like building a road, um, the people who live around it are going to have the most invested into it. So yeah, I do think that that prioritizing uh, local, especially given that we you know we live in an area without a uh, a ton of lane mileage of, of state highways, sure. uh, and so getting getting it to local in, in local hands is probably in this case going to help prevent it from being misspent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you'd mentioned this is a compromise budget, uh, yet the governor still has a line item veto. And uh, just like 43 other governors and Governor Whitmer decided to use that this time, uh, particularly on some uh, pro-life spending uh, that she identified, $16 million. Um, There's several different items here, but some of those include $10 million that would have gone to marketing materials promoting adoption as an alternative to abortion, uh, $1.5 million for pregnancy resource centers, uh, grants, just like here in Hillsdale, we got Helping Hands, um, $700,000 for pregnancy and parenting support services that would promote childbirth. Uh, And again, there's several more items as well. Tell us about that conversation and and what your reaction was when she vetoed those specific items. Yeah. And over in Branch County, we have Beginnings Care for Life. I I think, I mean, I you know, my best attempt to explain this would just be that um, it's a matter of party orthodoxy to to uh, to not cede any ground on the question of whether um, promoting abortion or promoting alternatives to abortion, you know, implies that uh, the right to abortion rests on anything other than um, a misunderstanding of of the the objection to abortion, and so you know the the objection to abortion that. I and and uh, and my allies raise is that you're, you're talking about a human life, uh, and that human life is worthy of legal protection, like other human lives are. And uh, given that the the uh, pro-choice or pro-abortion uh, element in our politics has to oppose that point, uh, any I think anything that that 
encourages the preservation of that life uh, becomes rhetorically risky for them. And so you're talking about something as uh, what you would think is something as non-controversial as promoting uh, the availability of adoption and the, um, you could even say the encouragement of adoption if you want. I don't mind the, the idea that the state would encourage people, you know, under a Roe versus Wade regime, that the state would still encourage people to adopt uh, or, or offer a baby for adoption rather than abort the baby. Um, I don't mind that that terminology. And, and I guess I just think uh, there are there are people within Governor Whitmer's coalition who who just cannot accept that that is a prefer preferable alternative to abortion. I mean, some of this some of the stuff I can't remember now if you mentioned this, but like resources for college students who become pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just shocking to me that that's and I think it was only half a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's a minuscule part of the budget. And uh, it could have made a big difference in the lives of, of a few, you know, uh, college age women who uh, were faced with with an unexpected pregnancy. Uh, and for some reason or no reason or for the reasons I've just given, uh, the governor wants to deny those resources to to those women and to their babies. So it's a uh, it's a move that I guess I think can only be seen as cynical. I don't think I mean, there's no budgetary reason for it. She didn't have a problem signing dozens of billions of dollars of other spending um so it, it's not that it has to be about the uh, actual policy that we're encouraging here and it's as simple as giving women the resources to understand other uh, options with regard to to adoption or in the case of these of this college money to understand their options and i mean universities have you know married housing for a reason or, or or family housing is what it's probably called now for a reason i mean it's not impossible to get through college having a baby but the rhetoric that you'll hear from the pro-abortion crowd is that as soon as a college girl's a uh, college uh, woman becomes pregnant uh, her life is over and so offering resources to demonstrate that that's not true is evidently a problem for governor whitmer i can't justify it but that's the best i can explain it yeah, absolutely. And off of that point, uh, that none of this would be restricting anyone's access to getting an abortion here in the state of Michigan. All of this was about marketing alternatives. And even one of the things that I would just did not get at all the most was parenting resources, parenting counseling for pregnant parents um, or pregnant pregnant women and, and their spouses. And so, I mean, this is just preparing people for parenting I think that was part of the college students as well you know people people who want to have children who have said that's the choice I want to make you're you're actually limiting their resources by cutting this not not certainly not expanding any abortion access by any means yeah I, I suppose it's you could look at it as as just a question of like do we, you know uh, assume that that the options of say uh, having and keeping a baby or having and, and adopting out a baby or aborting a baby are all sort of legal. You know, those, those are all n legally neutral right now. Mm -hmm. you know, should the state uh, empower people to make a, a choice um, within that uh, within that space is still an open question. And uh, the only one that our governor would encourage is abortion. Yeah, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We've got Representative Andrew Fink here with us. Last week, we talked about mask and vaccine mandates. And in the budget, there were some provisions about this, um, particularly the one that's getting the most controversy right now, a provision about mask mandates issued by local health departments. Um, 
here's from one of the sections of the bill the director of a local health or local health office officer shall not issue or enforce any orders or other directives that require an individual in the state who's under 18 to wear a face mask or face covering um, and then the second one says that no department shall enforce any directive requiring masking of children under five um, the governor didn't veto this language it, so it is law uh, and that's part of the controversy. She said she's not going to enforce it. Her her legal team says it's unenforceable, and she put out a press release about that. But several of the health agencies are not too sure about that. Our local uh, Branch Hillsdale St. Joseph Community Health Agency, they issued a statement Thursday night right before the budget would go into effect repealing their previous mask uh, ordinance uh, and all that, saying that they, they're worried until it's tested in court whether or not it's actually unenforceable. Uh, they don't want to lose their funding, so they're they're repealing that. Tell tell us first about the conversation getting that in the law. Um, certainly, in the nation, that's kind of a controversial thing to limit limit that power. Uh, and then about how how this is all come out after this. It's a high priority for me and my colleagues to have uh, this restriction on local health departments in there. I mean, this is another issue where, you know. Um, this struggle between whether to set policy at the state level or at the local level, you know, uh, rears its ugly head. And there's no, there's no kind of talisman through which you can read that. You got to think about it individually. And in this case, the way I looked at it is, uh, you have health departments. Um, most of the territory of the state has a health department that is multi-county, which just complicates the administration, uh, and it complicates to whom the health department is responsible. The health, you know, the director of the health department, uh, whatever. And, uh, and so what you essentially wind up with is a pretty distant relationship with the department and uh, a couple layers of, of responsibility between the voters and the uh, health department. And so if, if you take this language and, it, and it, as you say, the effect in our area here has been that the uh, health department orders for people under 18 years old uh, regarding masks have been removed, then... It's not that no one, you know, say in a school district could um, talk about or propose a, a mask order, but it would presumably be responsible. It would be the responsibility of the elected school board, mm -hmm. meaning that the people who are uh, responsible for the decision would be responsible directly to the, the people of the school district. And to me, that's a, that's a pretty major benefit when you're talking about an issue of serious controversy. Uh, obviously, there are people who feel very strongly uh, in both directions about uh, children wearing masks in schools. I will just tell you, I don't, I have not seen any um, evidence, and I have, you know, I've looked for it, that uh, suggests that children wearing masks in schools uh, provides a sufficient benefit uh, for the downsides, which are routinely just ignored uh, by those on the other side. And I, I am pretty sure we've talked about the, the way in which I object in every case uh, to tr kind of treating. Um, uh, children as the problem to be solved rather than the, uh, the, the thing for whom problems are supposed to be solved. You know, our, our society should be oriented around, um, you know, healthy in every way childhoods uh, leading to strong, healthy citizenship. Uh, and that means physical health. It also means civic health, you know. Uh, and so that's, that's where I would come down on this. If I were on a, on a school board, I would not be looking to impose a, uh, 
a, a district-wide mask mandate, but at a minimum, you will have people who are responsible to the people of their districts uh, having that conversation rather than health boards. As far as the enforceability goes, I mean, you know, Governor Whitmer and her team can speculate about how enforceable it's going to be, and I, I do imagine that we'll find out how courts will handle this. Uh, but she can't line item veto boilerplate language. She can, she can mm-hmm. decline to spend money. So, you know, we call that a line item veto. Uh, but it's it, she can't really get into the language, and you know, uh, in, in a more sanguine example, change commas to semicolons. Uh, but in a more serious case like this one, you know, change the policy uh, behind the spending. Uh, she either has to, she can spend the money or not, but she can't she can't really change the language of the statutes. So that's a uh, that's that's an area where we can you know we can grapple about it but in that sense it's not really different from any other spending restriction or any other piece of legislation I mean you probably don't remember Josh because of your age but signing statements became I don't remember them coming up during the Trump years and I don't even think I've heard of it happening during the Biden years yet but while George Bush was president and while Barack Obama was president uh, they expanded I think one one after the other I think Obama did even more than Bush did but in any event they used uh, what are called signing statements where uh, the president would sign a stat, will sign a statute, and then issue a statement saying, "I think this portion is unenforceable, or this portion is unconstitutional, or blah blah blah." And uh, that's in that's information that the rest of the you know the polity needs. Sure. If you have a president who uh, who is saying, you know, I'm interpreting this in this way because to interpret it the way you know the speaker has has analyzed it would be unconstitutional or what have you that's perfectly fine but it doesn't control what the rest of us with our own constitutional obligations uh have to do so again the fact that the that the governor says it's unenforceable i don't i don't know why she thinks that but uh i mean i guess i understand why she thinks it but uh i you know the, the health departments who are making their own judgments about this I mean they have their own responsibility to make those judgments and and the governor did say that about um the the restrictions in the higher ed budget regarding uh vaccinations um it, it that's a and I, sh- I guess i should just say that's a budget i actually voted against but uh the 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 even the the language got got a little less far in that budget regarding vaccine requirements um than in the general budget uh, but the governor said, essentially, you know, the universities are going to have to make their own decisions. They're governed by their own, you know, constitutionally uh, organized boards. Uh, they're going to have to make their own decisions about this. In reality, all constitutional officers have to make their own decisions about what they think the Constitution means. And if you lose a case over it, you can lose a case over it. But you've still got to be using your judgment uh, and not saying, I will defer. You know, I'm not going I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to take a position. I'm going to wait until a court tells me what to do. So another section in the DHHS budget forbids the department and its subsidiaries from requiring someone to be vaccinated before entering facilities or making a condition of employment. Um, but it, the more controversial part of this it forbids producing vaccine passports or databases. Um, and, and it does add if the state is required by the federal mandate or whatnot to set up a vaccine policy, the bill says that they should provide exemptions for medical reasons and religious or other consistently held objections, it says. Um, you know, particularly in light of the mask mandate portion of this budget and how much controversy that's been getting, particularly from the governor's office. Yeah, so I, I have found her messaging on, on this to be somewhat confusing. My understanding is that she does acknowledge that the restrictions on our state government creating or funding vaccine uh, passports uh is enforceable and will remain part of it. I think initially she, her, her press team indicated the opposite of that, and then she straightened it out later in the day. Uh, so 
I think that that's where she is with regard to the state itself doing it. I haven't heard her discuss what her approach will be uh, to a federal requirement relating to pass-through dollars. Uh, you're right that, that, I don't know, I don't remember the exact number, but a large amount of the money that is spent by our, our state and every state are federal pass-through dollars frequently with some kind of strings attached. Uh, that will be an issue of additional controversy. Um, I actually, I, I just don't know what she's going to say about that uh, when the time comes, uh, if it does, which I obviously hope it does not. Um, I, I definitely think that this is certainly an area that, that's understood uh, under our Constitution to be the responsibility of the states. I mean, it's a, it's a typical, classic police power of, you know, anything aff- affecting the you know, the health, morals, welfare, safety of the citizens is, is basically absent a, a constitutional grant of power to the to the federal legislature. It's understood to be uh, a state power. And I, and I would just say that something like whether to be vaccinated uh, is is typically understood to be one of those powers. So, you know, I'm I I hope that we don't have to have this conversation because uh, as I think. I know we did discuss the, the, the Biden thing last time. As I understand it, he has not actually yet implemented this plan that he announced. Um, and I would not be surprised if uh, they're sort of just hoping to see numbers continue to decline of COVID infections and things like that. And then eventually they can sort of let it go because the circumstances have changed. Uh, I kind of doubt that it's a fight that he really wants to have, be, knowing how uh, how weak his legal ground would be to impose that. So I... I guess all of this to say that's a fight that I'm willing to have if we have to have it, but I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that we probably won't on the, exactly the terms that Biden laid out and where Whitmer would be on it. It's not 100% obvious based on you know, the agreement she's made in this budget, that kind of thing. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink. Before we go today, I wanted to talk about some news that was breaking last night, Sunday evening, um, about uh, the NAACP Freedom Fund dinner in Detroit. Uh, there, Governor Whitmer gave a speech and then vetoed um, several bills on, that related to voting. Um, so this this is just last night. Um, these bills were passed in the legislature on Thursday, um, and th- some of them are addressing where polling locations would be placed, um, limiting access to the state voter files, um, talking about voting equipment being connected to the Internet and all of that. Tell me what you can say about this issue and, and the governor vetoing all of those. Yeah, so the governor has vetoed these and, and in other cases has vetoed uh, bills without objecting on the, to, the, to the terms of the actual policy uh, that were that we're dealing with, but instead for sort of, you know, reasons that are not directly related to the language uh, of, of the, uh, of the bills themselves. And so in this case, you know, she's, she's saying that she vetoed a bill that would prohibit uh, uh, voting machines from being connected to the internet while they are in use uh, because it would perpetuate what she calls a big lie. Well, I think when you have a piece of legislation in front of you as the governor, you have the responsibility to say, like, will this uh, will this enhance or detract from, you know, in this case, the security of elections and the confidence that people have in elections. Um, it is already the case that, like, the uh, the the secretary of state guidance on this is, of course, that a voting machine should not be connected right. to the Internet while it's in use. Putting it into statute. Uh, makes sense. No one objects to it, and in fact, I, I'm trying to look up now what the uh, 
what the vote was. I think that more than 20 uh, members of the other party, you know, uh, uh, of Governor Whitmer's own party, uh, voted for it. Um, uh, and so the okay, it looks like when we passed it uh, initially, at least there were 77 yeses on that bill. So that means at uh, at least if every Republican voted for it, 19 Democrats voted for it as well mm-hmm. out of you know 52. So something approaching a third of the uh, of the of the Democratic caucus, which is just to say this is a pretty common sense deal. It's not that partisan. Uh, it makes sense to everybody. And the only objections I've heard to it are that, you know, they don't basically they don't like who who likes it, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want people who are unhappy about the 2020 election to be more happy. And so I just I think that it it undermines uh, civic cohesion. Uh, it's a terrible way to make policy to basically decide, like, who is psychologically, you know, benefiting from a signature or a veto. Uh, and uh, it's typical of our governor's addiction to politics over policy. And that's, I mean, that's just, that's where she lives. Um, it, to say that a bill like this is, uh, is uh, racially motivated is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely normal step uh, to have secure elections to prohibit uh, machines for being connected to the internet. Why would you veto it? Why would you uh, drag up a bunch of, I mean, honestly, just lies about uh, about racial motivations for it? I mean, the reason is, again, because you think it's, it's helpful politically. Uh, it has nothing to do with good policy, and it's just dishonest. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Representative Fink, for joining us today. And you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh. 